Welcome to the official podcast of Comics Fear and Sci-Fi. Brought to you by Evil Ideas, Greco Printing and Imaging, Comics Wellspring, Grand River Ballroom, and Shorty Bell's Pizza. Before we get started, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow Comics Fear and Sci-Fi on all your favorite social media apps. Now, on with the show! The moment I wake up. You know what happens? People um, uh, right away start singing the rest of that song. I'm, I was only doing the first first verse. Yeah. No, I wasn't <laughs> about to chime in, but I understand that this happens at weddings and other family events. And that that song, maybe also just the way you look tonight from that movie, are like universal earworms from the 90s that never left. Never left anybody. Everybody knows those songs from that movie. It's magic. Anyways, this is Mark at the Motor City Comic Con. I'm here with legendary actor Dermot Melroney. So tell me, when you started your career, did you ever think you'd be at shows meeting your fans? No, I, I never even thought of it. And then maybe a couple of years ago, I've become aware that there's this wonderful industry out here. Um, but still, nobody ever really asked me to come. And frankly, I hadn't been in a um, popular, like, on-the-ground franchise. So really, what obviously, what happened with me... I was um, fortunately cast in Scream 6 uh, for Paramount. That's uh, obviously a super successful franchise. And guess what? That's when, um, that's when they decided to put me uh, out on the circuit. So it is the first time in a uh, 37, 38-year-old career where uh, I'm face-to-face with fans learning about their family, getting, getting a view of the inside of their home life, what these films meant to people even something i worked on maybe two weeks 30 years ago still impacting people today so i'm so in awe of how powerful the art form and the medium is that all of us work in and how much it means to people in their daily life so this is the best way to see it uh, you know person-to-person interaction i basically grew up seeing your face in a lot of projects a lot of various projects like you know longtime companion the aids movie Fred, you know long you know Phil. Yeah, Young Guns. Also important in its own right that it re, uh, refreshed uh, uh, Westerns at that time. The first thing I saw you in was the HBO baseball movie Long Gone. Long yeah. Gone is a brilliant film uh, directed by Martin Davidson, who's, who's gone now, starring um, Billy Peterson. was a little fresher on the scene. He'd already done those Friedkin movies. Um, and Larry, Larry Riley, who's gone. I played that rookie second baseman in those Grapefruit Leagues in 1950. That one's hard to find. It's on YouTube, but it never made the jump successfully from VHS cassette to DVD. And a lot of those movies from around then, late 80s, early 90s, they never came back until now. Now some of these streamers are finding sort of that lost class of films right around 1990. That They were, they were selling them in bundles. And so some of those bundles included really great movies that kind of fell through the cracks. So a lot of them are back. I think long gone you can actually begin to get clean, original copies of it. So before that, it had always been duped from VHS and moved over. So it was like a couple generations old when you're looking at it. So I remember how the tech changed, you know, and some projects were lost in the process. I remember recording it. And that one out. Yeah, and you remember recording it at home on on the VHS. Yeah, Yeah. from HBO. Amazing. So that shows you how long I've been with HBO. That was their second movie. 
that they ever made. The first one was that great film with uh, um, Michael O'Keefe and Robert Duvall uh, called uh, The Great Santini, or oh. The Ace, I think it had two Oh, times. I love that movie. Right, so that was how early that film was. That was an early era, again, of, uh, of, a, of a cable service making their own films. It was really groundbreaking in that moment. Now all the streamers are making fresh material, et cetera. So that was just, a, again, a little tick in the how, how we do it, how, how we get your movies uh, category. You seem to be always working. You, we, you know, aren't you like a regular job? Honestly, that's, that's what started to turn my mentality. Like You get used to having a role, and then you got to hustle to get your next one, so you have all that downtime. Um, and some of that came out and was reflected in our labor dispute with the producers in that uh, you know we're all used to not having work we weren't striking because we can't get jobs that's already a problem we're actors right that comes with the turf so some of that got foggy in there we were talking about what you make for when you do have a job there's nothing you can do for not getting a job so now i try to fill my calendar i feel like it's my assignment to get as much acting in as possible Back in the 90s when you did My Be Best Friend's Wedding, how much did that change your life? That was a big movie. Well, it was a big movie, and it changed my life then. It changed my status, or at least, yeah, it certainly changed my status in the industry. Um, but I even said to my friend Julia Roberts just a couple weeks ago, um, yeah, that it was a life-changing event. I don't know what my life would have been without that movie, without her. Um, so I'm triple blessed, 100 times over, for that movie. And, um, and even more so now. So to answer your question, that movie was powerful, culturally important movie at the time. And it's even more so now is what I say because it reflects that time and it, 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 it evokes memory and nostalgia and love in, in people when they see it. Um, so it, it's more powerful film now. Over time, it's gained power, which is also phenomenal when um, art in any form does that. It gets better to the next generation instead of just diminishing and going away like a lot of films do. They have a life cycle and they're gone. That one will live forever at the top. Let's talk about that iconic lunch scene with the, with the Say a Little Prayer song. Yeah. Okay. How, how many takes did you guys do, do singing that song? Right. Well, I'm sure we shot that all day. I can remember where the trucks were parked behind in the alley um, that led into the back of that restaurant that was all dressed for the scene and everything. But they'd rehearse it. They'd already worked on it. Julia and I don't sing in that scene. So we weren't assigned to the rehearsals because we're just acting. So when we get to the day, they added us. So neither of us knew that it was as elaborate as it was. We hadn't seen it on the set. We didn't know there was going to be crab claw choreography in the background. So literally, some of those shots where you see her looking at me saying, this is the family you want to marry into? We're lit. We're seeing it for the first time, and those are real reactions on that day, I remember. And then, of course, Rupert was simply a tour de force in that scene. To take that role, to take that speech, to move it into a sing-along so seamlessly, so skillfully. We have Rupert Everett to thank for why that scene is what it is. Just an incredible, bright performance in that moment that will live forever and he repeated that song and it comes back and people just watch that and it's a meme now now they have memes so anyways uh what do you got coming down the pipeline hey i got a couple good things they let a little gritty movie one moment i'll answer again 
Ask me again. So, so, so what do you got coming up? A couple of cool films. One just came out the other day, a gritty thriller called The Dirty South. So you can find that out in the digital realm. A couple weeks, December 22nd is when a big Sony Pictures rom-com is released in theaters. It's called Anyone But You. It'll star Sidney Sweeney and Glenn Powell, who we love from, um, from Top Gun Maverick, right? Of course, so they're the young romance couple. Me and, of all people, Rachel Griffiths, who was the star in that scene we just discussed in Best Friends Wedding. She was one of the like, twin sisters. She was one of the Texas twins. We play uh, the mother and father of the bride in a wedding movie rom-com. Anyone but you, December 22nd, same day. You'll have to look for this one um, out there online. It's a really cool knuckle buster movie of, uh, th th where I freaking break people's arms. It's called Ruthless, and it's really well made by a fight choreographer director named Art Camacho, who's incredible. And so that'll be full on like arm breaking action movie. Same day release, much different size movies and so forth. But enjoy, that's what I got coming soon. Another really good movie, Breakwater, you'll keep your eyes out for, too, coming soon. We're excited to see that. Anyways, Dermot, we don't want to take up too much of your time. What a pleasure, man. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And this is Mark at the Motor City Comic Con with the legend Dermot Melroney. This is the cue from Comics Man Sci-Fi, and we're here at Motor City Comic Con. <laughs> I'm here with T.C. Carlson, who is TV legend, film star, and voice actor and a great singer. How's it doing, going today? Oh, everything's well, man. How about yourself? Doing good, I'm doing good. I told my producer, I said, this is the only guy I want to talk to. <laughs> I was like, this is the only guy I want to talk to today. Like, I'm here really just for you. <laughs> uh, so tell us, how did you get into this world of acting? Was it singing first or did you start acting first? Which one came first? It was singing and dancing first and then the acting came and then the voice work came. You've played a lot of characters, Kratos, Mace Windu. Which one is your favorite character to voice act? I really, oh, I like Kratos and Mace for two different reasons. Well, Mace is cool, and he's a Jedi, so, you know, and he's a black Jedi, so, hey. And uh, Kratos is just angry, and sometimes I'm just angry. Also wanted to talk to you, I would lose my black card if I didn't, talk to you about living single. Uh, you recently, you guys recently celebrated your 30th anniversary, and a lot of people don't know that without Living Single, there's no show that they consider one of the greatest sitcoms in Friends, even though we both know y'all were better than them. Uh, expand on that, because you had a lot of great guest stars, and it was a great show. Well, you know, what the people saw with Living Single was a real friendship and family. We all love each other for real. And I think that's what came through um, on the screen. And we kind of didn't have anything that showed that demographic, those 30-somethings in their world, uh, making it work, uh, making their careers work. And so I think that was the thing that really resonated with people. And it was a natural progression to me. We had, um, uh, what is a Cosby show where they were in high school. Then we had Different World where they were in college. And so Living Single was what happened after college, basically. Interesting. I never thought about it like that. And you got to be able to sing on that show. We all know the My Funny Valentine episode. But my favorite scene is when you're in the mirror and you're like, I am everything and everything is me. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> but which is your favorite vocal performance on the show? Um, actually, it is Honeysuckle Rose when he's in the jazz club. I, I love the My Funny Valentine. It was, that was really a great 
that whole great day was great. But I think um, the sentiment behind uh, Honeysuckle Rose and the reason why and all of that, I think that's, I really love that whole episode. Great. That was a great episode, too. Uh, and last question, is there anything coming up that we can expect you in coming down the pipeline? Well, we got a movie that's coming out, the um, Wesley Christmas movie. will be out on BET, and we're working on a new um, late-night show that you'll hear about um, in this coming year. Hey, well, thank you so much for your time, and uh, I'm still looking for my Max and Kyle spinoff show. <laughs> that's what I'm waiting on. <laughs> this has been The Cube from Congress Man Sci-Fi. talking to Mike with Real Rides, and he has brought us a uh, recreation of the RoboCop car. Tell us about how this all came about, Mike. Well, I was trying to find one to make one because there's not a lot of them around there, and I got educated real fast. It's not an easy car to find to do. It's an easy car to build. It's an easy car to make. It's not an easy car to find. So that's the problem you run into with this. And how did you find it? After, like, weeks of searching, um, I came across an older lady who was selling her car because she was moving to Texas, and I was like, I'll take it. Now, how many cars total have you done? God, I've been, I didn't know I've been doing this for so long. But I would say at least maybe a half a dozen, maybe seven. I've oh. done different I've done boats. I've done cars. I've done... So, yeah. I've done. You know, how do you decide which car, and how did you decide to do the Robocop? How many General E's are out there? How many... Batmobiles, how many, it's the same, you see the same, same, same. I want something different, I want something unique, I want something, oh, I haven't seen that before. Right. And that's what that is all about. Do you have a holy grail car you'd like to make? Bang, bang. Okay. I want that. Are you working on it or are you just no, kind of dreaming I, about it? I don't, I don't, I don't even know where I would start with that, honestly, because it's, it's not a real car. It's a car you have to create everything. I mean, you got to build it from the ground up. And it's, it's not like you go buy this car and turn it into one. Right. It's right. all handmade. Peter Weller is at the show today. Are you, you think he might uh, come by and get a picture with you? I am expecting Dr. Weller to come by, and I'm going to go over there and see him, too. All right. Well, he's quite a buckaroo, isn't he? <laughs> okay. I saw what you did there. I have a treat for you. I'm here with legendary actress Lorraine Bracco. Tell me, Lorraine, back when you started acting, did you ever think you'd be coming to conventions, meeting your fans? No, but it's really fun. You know, when we make movies and TV, we don't really meet a lot of the public. So when we come here, it's just very humbling and nice, and people like my work, and they think I look good for my age. I love that. <laughs> you look great for 39. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so tell me, I know you get these questions all the time about Goodfellas, but... What was it like working with Martin Scorsese for the first time when you first started acting with him? Scary. <laughs> oh, intimidating. I had all the boys, so it was intimidating. And then Ray Liotta, did he help you a lot during in a lot of your scenes? Yes, thank God for Ray. Yes, Ray was very serious. He knew exactly the scene and, and how he wanted to play it and, and kind of pushed me in my marks. He was great. He was a great leading man. Now, when the movie came out, were you concerned that it wouldn't, like, th that the, the viewing public wouldn't take to it very well? Because there was, like, kind of negative test screenings to it. Ray wasn't a very successful movie. I mean, I think it made... I don't know if it even broke $50 million. It was a very low 
uh, turnout. And over the years, it became a, a, a cult classic, right? These are the best movies out there. The ones that simmer until, and they become a souffle. It simmered. <laughs> and let's think about all the directors you've spo- you've worked with. You've worked with Ridley Scott also. Oh, so what was his tech? I have a, I have a nice list. I have a great director list. Dick Donner, he did Superman, Radio Flyer, Goonies, um, all the Lethal Weapons. No, no, I've been very lucky. Of course, Ridley Scott, amazing. So tell me, when you got casted in The Sopranos, was your role in Goodfellas a big part of how you got casted in it? Well, I think David Chase wanted to meet me because of it, because of my work in Goodfellas. So, yes. James Gandolfini, what was it like to work with him? He was a pain in my ass. I don't know about anybody else. We had a great relationship. Don't get me wrong. It was a lot of fun. Um, we played a lot of jokes on each other. He was a great actor. Finally, what do you got coming down the pipeline? What do you got coming out? Um, I have a movie coming out with Vince Vaughn called Nornas. And I have a movie coming out with um, Mark Wahlberg. We're here with Karen. No, Lorraine Bracco at the Motor City <laughs> Comic Con. This is The Cube from Comics Brand Sci-Fi, and I'm here with Black Lamb, who is the author of Adventures on Lauder. Pretty much, I created a brand and comic books here um, based off my real-life dog. And what I typically tell people is that if you ever seen, like, Boondocks, Family Guy, Simpsons, that's what inspired me to do a lot of the things that I'm doing here. Um, I just like to make people laugh. The same dog becomes the mayor of Detroit. Once he becomes the mayor of Detroit, he shuts down all the Detroit public high schools. Once he shuts down those high schools, he brings in a construction crew, tears them down, and builds strip clubs. So he builds strip clubs across the city of Detroit. By the end of the book, he ended up winning a Nobel Peace Prize for the amount of money that he made in that short period of time. Now people ask me, why would you write about something like that? There's so many different things that you can write about and um, you know catch people's attention. What made you write about that? Uh, it's sort of ignorant. Well, the thing is, it's a satire. It's connected to reality. It's connected to the truth. If you ride in Detroit or you're from Detroit, you grew up there, you just go down eight mile from west to east. And people know what I'm talking about. There are more liquor stores and strip clubs than it is actual high schools. So I like to poke at the truth and um, just have a lot of fun on the way there while I'm building awareness. I mean, he ain't wrong. I went here before, so I know you walk right up the street. And you, I, that's my hood. I grew up on Vine of Pembroke. <laughs> I went here before, so I mean, like, he ain't wrong. <laughs> so, so what's next for our uh, Nobel Peace Prize winning dog in the turtleneck? Oh, we're going to keep pushing. Uh, this is our fourth Comic-Con, and uh, there are going to be many more that we're going to um, go to. But the ultimate goal is to eventually uh, get it animated, get it on the TV so, so the world can see it. Instagram, all of my information is on Instagram. I do have a store on Amazon. All of uh, my clothing line, my books can be found on Amazon. And on my last question, uh, I'm going to say you're a Pistons fan by the design. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you this. I'm a fan of all things Detroit. I also have a clothing line 
And if you take a look at this here, um, this is one of my favorite pieces because it's my dog in the Isaiah Thomas jersey with a pair of Cartier glasses, also known as Buffs, and he's holding some chili cheese fries from Coney Island. It doesn't get more Detroit than that. So I love, I love supporting my city and pushing my city and putting it on my back. I'm Ronnie with Tentacle Kitty. They are interdimensional space cats. I know you see the tentacles, everyone goes, Octokitty. They are not octopi. They are cats who just so happen to have tentacles. Wow, so what inspired this idea? So John and Raina Merritt are the creators of Tentacle Kitty and John loves cats and Ray loves things with tentacles. She um, studies a lot of things, but she was really into marine biology. And as a good husband, John took it upon himself to draw a cute creature which is the pink one we have up there. Um, he drew it for Raina and she was delighted. She showed all of her friends, they posted it on the internet and everybody said, it needs to be a plushie. Years went by, it became a plushie, it became a hit and we are now the top one, two and three funded Kickstarter plush and have several different lines of tentacle kitties. Wow, so if I wanted to purchase one of these and I can't make it to Comic-Con, where can I go? www.tentaclekitty.com. Um, one of the best things about Tentacle Kitty is the community, the fans. They get a lot of say in it where a lot of creators don't, they, they just create it and if you like it, you like it, you don't, you don't. John has completely redesigned Tentacle Kitties before to fit their fans' needs. He's even allowed his Patreon members to design a kitty. That's what I was gonna ask now. So I see you have all kind of sizes. It can go from small to large. Yeah, so these ones are little ones. Think kitten. So these ones right here are baby Tentacle Kitties. And as they get older, they actually get more tentacles. So if you counted them, there's actually seven tentacles here. But I'm actually gonna show you something really neat about our product. So. A group of tentacle kitties is called a cuddle. So you've got to cuddle. But the reason that's important is because not only do you cuddle them, they cuddle you. So I'm going to have you take this one right here. Yeah. Oh, this is cute. And it's like a little stress reliever. I want to squeeze them and it's squish them. Nice. Well, thank you so much for your time. I might have to take this one home. <laughs> it's giving you the adopt me eyes. It sure is. I have a treat for you. I'm here with legendary comedic actor Chris Parnell. How you doing? I'm good, Mark. I'm good. So far, so good. So tell me, how did you get started in your career doing this great comedy that you've given to the world? Oh, thanks. Um, I, you know, I guess I started in high school, really. I started doing plays in high school, and I really enjoyed it. And my drama teacher, Mr. Bluestein, encouraged me to pursue it if I if I wanted to which I did so you know I did college studied drama and then it was the groundlings out in LA that made a big difference because people started seeing me at shows there and casting me and things and then that's how ultimately I got seen for Saturday Night Live so. yeah the Saturday Night Live the, your, your Tom Brokaw blew me away I always loved it Whoa, this is Tom Brokaw <laughs> this is Tom Brokaw with the NBC Nightly News Brilliant. So tell me, what was some of the experiences, the best experiences you had working on Saturday Night Live? Oh, wow. Um, well, you know, it got to meet so many amazing hosts and musical guests. But one highlight moment, I was watching you 2 play during the live show. And I happened to be out on the floor, which I always tried to be if there was a musical guest I really wanted to see. So I was out there, and this, in this particular one, Val Kilmer was the host, and Bono just walked off the stage with his mic and continued to sing the song walking around the studio floor. And so the camera operators and the director and everybody were just trying to follow him. And it was like this, you know, it was like such a real rock and roll kind of moment, you know? And it was just like, wow, this is happening. Nobody knew he was going to do it. So that was pretty exciting. Okay. And then now you, you worked, with, worked on Rick and Morty. 
So how fun is that? Rick and Morty's fantastic. You know, it's a show I, I like to watch, too. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a part that I feel very lucky to get to play. Um, and it's a part that, um, for better or for worse, I can relate to is Jerry Smith. But, uh, yeah, it's fantastic. I, I love working on it. How glad are you now that the strike is over? Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad, I mean, for all the obvious reasons and then just, like, on the immediate, in the, in the immediate sense, I'm so glad it's over so I can talk about the shows that I work on so I don't have to, like, talk around them, you know, like I would have had to if the strike was still going on. So what do you got coming down the pipeline? Uh, let's see. There's a movie called As We Know It that I have a little part in um, that is either come out or about to come out. I don't know how... I don't know how big of a release it will get, but I know it's at some theaters in Los Angeles. Um, I play uh, a news reporter, actually, in that one. Um, uh, let's see, what else? I don't know. I, you know, uh, just odd little, odds and ends, little things here and there, you know. Well, Chris, we don't want to take up too much of your time. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, nice speaking with you. This is Mark at the Motor City Comic Con with Chris. This is the cue from Comics Man Sci-Fi. I'm here with Omri. And we are going to discuss his book, Yi Sun Shin. And I got it right on the first time. He didn't have to coach me through it. I didn't. That was perfect. You were spot on, my brother. Thank you. Thank you. So tell us about the book. Uh, uh, so Yi Sun Shin is about a Korean admiral that battled the Japanese in the 1500s. He was on number 10 to 1, and he beat him 23 times in a row and never lost a battle. And it's all based on a true story. And uh, we got a deal going on um, here at this convention. And at other uh, on the internet and everywhere uh we do all four comics for just 10 bucks um and we also had a really gracious board by the man himself stan lee yeah yeah and i also have another series that came out called warline which is about an old vigilante and his daughter going after the tyrant that destroyed their lives and now controls their city and it's a three issue mini series that uh i just released this year now, does that tie in the Yisushin? No, it's a completely different thing because it's like sci-fi, martial arts, you know? Okay. Yeah. So by Yisushin being a historical retelling, I'm assuming you're a history buff, correct? You know what? I, it's not so much that I'm a history buff so much as I wanted to tell stories about heroes. That's what got me into comics. Okay. And what better than to tell the story of a true hero? Okay. So that's always been what I, I've, I always get attracted to doing projects that I myself can in, can be invested in. Makes sense, makes sense. Did you just write it or did you illustrate it? I am the writer, creator, and producer. I draw the layouts in the book, but I hire artists to actually bring the images to life. And uh, we get some really talented guys who can take my really uh, remedial art and turn it into something really amazing with their own input and uh, their their own unique creativity. So collaboration through and through. Cool, cool. So what historical retelling are you want to do next? Or is there something or is it going to be original next? I think I'm starting to get away from history, to be honest <laughs> with you. I did another historical book about my grandfather's life. Um, during World War II, my grandfather was actually uh, on the front lines fighting Germany as a Russian Jewish soldier. And we, we, we got a graphic novel out and it's actually sold out of its second printing now. So I got to figure out how to get it back out there. And that's something I'm working on. Um, but I'm also uh, looking into doing some uh, cool open domain stuff pretty soon. And uh, there's a chance you might see me on, a, on another big name book in the future. So 
Oh, spoiler alert. We got a spoiler alert. Spoilers, just, you know, subtle hints. Subtle hints. Oh, subtle hints. I'm sorry. I jumped the gun. <laughs> subtle hints. But I also resell comics, too. I'm, I am I am comics 24-7, and I do a broadcast show on um, all of my social media channels. And um, I sell everybody's stuff, independent comics, Marvel, DC, you name it. So where can we find uh, your comics and plus everything else? A website, Facebook? Yes. Uh, so you can go to my website. It's uh, www.yisunshin.com. You can see it on the back of the, of the cover here. And uh, you can also visit uh, me on Facebook. Just find me on Facebook, friend me. That's always the best way to contact me. And if you reach out to me, I'll reach out to you because uh, for me... Uh, I want more people to read comics, not just my stuff, but everything. Everybody's stuff deserves to be read. I can appreciate that. This has been The Q from Comics Man Sci-Fi. Hey, this is Mark, the Motor City Comic Con. I'm here with legendary comic dealer, Lauren Becker. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. How you doing? I'm great. Tell me, what is people looking for at this show? Well, they're looking for a whole lot of stuff. Uh, Silver Age Spider-Mans, uh, Golden Age stuff. Uh, one of my best sellers, though, um, is my Danhausen variant book. Uh, Danhausen's actually going to be here this uh, this weekend, so I've, got, I've been selling a lot of those. Great. Uh, so why is that such a hot book? Well, what it is, uh, Danhausen's a big wrestling star in AEW, and he's like the, one of their top merchandise sellers. Uh, for the company, so everybody loves Dan Housen stuff. So Dan Housen and I actually did that cover in in, in a joint connection, and uh, it's, everybody just loves it. We did a soft pre-sale on it before it came out. It sold 72 copies in 20 minutes online. Oh, that's awesome! So tell me, what is the what is the priciest book you got here? The priciest book I have is my All Winners Comics number one. I'm asking twenty thousand dollars. Twenty grand. Now tell me, how did you get started doing uh, comic book? Deal? Well, it happened when I was like about four. Uh, my uncle was moving away to college, and he gave me his entire comic book collection. And after that, I was just enthralled, and I, I started collecting. And then I saw there was a lot of money in it, so I started uh, becoming a dealer at about twelve years old. So you go to a lot of the big shows. Uh, what are some of the best shows that you like to go to? Uh, well, obviously Motor City, um, C2E2 in Chicago, New York Comic Con in, obviously, New York. And then, of course, there's the granddaddy, uh, San Diego Comic Con. You make all those shows? Yep. Everything. You, you, gotta ha you have to have a lot of energy for that. I do now. After the show is a totally different story. What was that other book you were talking about? The, the was there a Superman book over here? It's not really a book, but oh, this is one of the screen worn S's from uh, George Reeves' uh, uh, cape from uh, one of the series, uh, from one of the episodes in the series. And there's also an index card signed by George Reeve. Oh, that's got to be oh my god, that's a one of a kind. I mean, gee. Oh yeah, I. It took me a while to negotiate this, but I got it, and it's one of those pieces where if I don't sell it, really don't mind. Tell me, besides dealing at the shows, how can people find your high-quality comics online? 
Well, you can go to my website, comicpopcollectibles.com. Uh, links up to my eBay store, and I have a majority of this stuff on, on, uh, on my site. So do you still collect personally, and what do you collect? Yeah, I still have a, 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 a collection that I have. Um, I don't do a lot with comics, but I have a nice original art collection, um, and I have a beautiful toy collection. Uh, one of the pieces in my collection that I was looking for for years, I finally got it um, back in 99. Uh, my ideal 1939 wood action figure of Superman. It was one of the very first superhero figures ever made and one of the very first Superman license pieces ever made. When you pass away, there's, there's going to be a massive auction going on with your stuff. <laughs> no, my daughter's probably just going to throw it all away. You, you need, yeah, you need to have a talk with her. <laughs> she won't listen to me. All right, thanks, Lauren. I'm here with Matt Laskowski of MidMichigan Comics. What are people buying? So overall, and I would say this would kind of stretch out to just beyond this show in particular and kind of a trend I've seen over the last four or five shows. To put it back into perspective, in 20, 2020, 2021, really since about 2016, 17, Marvel was about 80% of all sales. And that included DC and independent, 75, 80%. Now what you're seeing is about a 50-50 split between Marvel, DC, well, they'll say maybe 45, 45, and 10% to the independents and th things of that nature. So, yeah, I mean, DC has come on red hot of late, not just at this show, but in general. Um, people are, I mean, you just kind of saw behind me, people were, right before we started this, people were digging in the DC boxes. They used to be, no one, no one wanted other than Batman. And now people are looking at um, buying, I had a guy buy a run of Justice League, just filler copies. That, two, three years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. So pe people are looking for those, you know, 5 to $10 copies of DC books that they weren't looking for uh, just a couple years ago. Do you think that they could be anticipating some, like, hot books coming around the corner from James Gunn taking over the DC universe? I think that's absolutely what it is. Um, I'd like to say that people are discovering, you know, the art and stories, Nick Cardi's Aquaman, you know, uh, looking at Neil Adams, not just his Batman work, but uh, his work on other titles on Superman, House of Mystery, etc. But I will say this, when you've got like a, something, you know, that I, I would say would be artificially propping it up like a movie or something, people do discover those art and stories and then they become fans of it, right? Like, they might buy a Swamp Thing comic because um, there's a TV show or a Netflix show or something like that coming out. But then once they realize how good like the story is, how good the Bernie Wrights and art is, right? How good Alan Moore's stories were on the title, then they they want all of them. I mean that that's kind of how I came about it. Is you know what this is really good, you know? Um, and I and I think that's going to keep happening with a lot of the DC titles. Uh, people are going to start collecting some of those runs that they just they weren't looking for a couple of years ago because they didn't know about. It. They were all ingrained in the Marvel stuff. So is there any particular books, any issues that people are looking for right now? The first Guy Gardner, the first Metamorpho, because of the, the movie hype. Um, other books that people always want that they continue to ask about, uh, the Neil Adams uh, Batman covers, like 220, Batman 227, Batman 251, uh, those striking iconic uh, books like that, people always want them. And then people still want the Marvel keys, just not at the clip that they did a couple of years ago. It doesn't seem like people are excited right now with the way the MCU is going. 
No, it's not. Um, not I, that's an accurate statement. I, I'll be polite and say that that's, that's true. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get started collecting or getting into the comic book business? So I'm, I'm 43. I started collecting comics when I was three years old and made my parents read them to me. And I have stacks of them uh, from when I was a kid that with the colors, covers attached and everything on them. Uh, that, that's how I got into it. Um, I, my dad, when I was about seven or eight years old, um, he worked for um, a place in Ann Arbor um, that did software imaging for doctors anyway. Um, the UPS driver, FedEx driver, uh, one time came and said, hey, Bob, I know you've talked about your kid liking comics. I have this old 10-cent Superman that I found, like, someone was throwing out and, at their house, and I picked it up. Do you want it for 20 bucks? And he bought it for me. I remember when I unwrapped it for a Christmas or birthday, I just looked at that, and I was like, oh, my God, when I saw this, this you know, 10-cent comic, the first one I ever had. Um, and that, that kind of started the buzz. And I, I actually recently just finished my own Superman collection from 1 through 423, and I've got it complete now, um, which is... Yeah, awesome. I wish I would have finished it before he passed away because he's the one that really got me started into this. But I will say, um, I struggled reading. You know, I, I and I've gone to someone that's you know four pointed calculus and went on to college and everything like that. You know, uh, in, in later years. But I struggled reading. I was not doing well in school. Comic books absolutely saved me. Like I would not be where I'm at in life without comics. Like I learned how to read off these things. I've been a lifelong collector, and I'm still a ham and egg dealer. Like you know, you talk about people like like Todd or like Roger was uh, Rick, um, some of these other guys. Like those are what I consider like the real dealers. Like I'm a collector who sets up and buys comics. You know, like because I can get access to them and buy collections, and that's how I get books at good prices and everything. But yeah, I mean, I, so I'm still a ham and egg, but I'm still more of a collector anyway now. But, tell, us, tell us about your inventory here today. What uh, what are the uh, the big books you have here? What's the most expensive book you got on the on the wall there? The most expensive books are not mine. They are friends of mine that I have let them put up on the wall. The ASM number one, Amazing Spider-Man number one, um, the Star Spangled War stories, and uh, the pre-code horror books there are not mine. I keep a lot of my really nice pre-code horror anyway, but they're my buddies over here. So uh, those are actually the higher end stuff. And honestly, you know, this is a little trick of the trade for your listeners, um, for your fans. Um, I don't mind having that kind of stuff up there. People are like, well, they're going to buy your friend's books and not yours. So what? They're going to stop at my booth and look at that and be like, oh my gosh, Amazing Spider-Man number one. And I also get to, you know, like tease some of the people like you that I'm friends with that, uh, and say, ah, yes, look at my ASM one. It's much nicer than your copy, right? And get to tease some of the other dealers. And I, then I do feel like some of those big dealers, but yeah. Hey, this is Mark at the Motor City Comic Con. I'm here with Dave of Stax Comics. How you doing? How's the show going? Show's going well. First time here, actually. Always selling. So what's uh, what people looking for to this uh, this year? A lot of people are asking for like Bronze Age horror. I've sold a whole bunch of that, and some of the newer keys. So, say First Laura Kenny, the NYX. People are asking about those kind of things as well. Not a lot in the way of slabs moving. Why do you think that is? You know. I've heard from a couple of different dealers and other people selling online that slabs have kind of been stagnant lately. A lot of people are going for raw books and things that they can read and hold, and people are tying this into the economy, of course. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into dealing comics? When we were teenagers, you know, you start putting beautiful ladies on the wall. I still had Batman on the wall. So it just carried on for years and years. I found myself selling pieces of my collection and then 
to buy more things and then it turned into larger collections and now here we are. So what do you foresee, uh, what comic do you foresee is going to be the, the hot comic around the corner? You know, I think if Marvel keeps on going with, uh, with Thor, I think Beta Ray Bill is going to show up and people are still kind of speculating on Beta Ray Bill and Silver Surfer showing up. So I think those will be hot ticket items going forward. So you talked about what is already what people have been looking for. Uh, what did you What did you bring? What kind, What kind of inventory did you bring to, uh, to the show? I always like to bring a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So we have some nice Bronze Age, Silver Age, maybe lower grade things for two dollars each, and I like to alphabetize everything. So I happen to have some Silver Age Wonder Woman, a whole bunch of that, uh, Action Comics, Daredevil, and uh, some Silver Age Iron Man too. What is the, tell us, what's the most expensive comic you have uh, that you're selling here? I, right now, I have Fantastic Four, number one, the Golden Record reprint. It's graded on the wall and a 9.0. You can have it and take it home for $2,000. So, are you a collector yourself, and what do you collect? I'm still a collector, and I'm a, a bit of a completionist. So, right now, I'm short about 20 issues of having the entire volume one of Uncanny X-Men, and I'm about four issues short of having every single issue of Iron Man ever created. If you currently, it's going to be a lot of nerdy sci-fi. So let's talk about Undiscovered Country. Uh, really like Once in Future. Although it's more or less complete, it's good stuff. Go out to your local comic store and get it. So if people are looking for you besides at these shows, where can they find you online? You can find me on Facebook at the Stacks Comics and Paperback is a group. Go ahead and send me a request. You can also find me online, same name, the Stacks on eBay. Anyways, Dave, it was a pleasure speaking with you. And this is Mark with Comic Experience Sci-Fi at the Motor City Comic Con. That's it for this episode of the Comic Experience Sci-Fi Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.